Hello, 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 and welcome back to the 52 Week Film Project. We are now on volume two of our Tarantino epic. If you are joining us from volume one, you will have just heard a very excited Jake and a very excited Will go on and on and on about Tarantino's filmography. Hopefully, you learned something you didn't know, because in the last week, we learned a fuckload. Yes. Um, But now we are here to review Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, which is the new movie, came out on Wednesday the 14th of August here in the UK, been out for a couple of weeks in the US. Um, Will, why don't you give us an outline of what this film is and where it sits in the Tarantino filmography? Yes, this is the ninth film by Quentin Tarantino. Uh, He plans to do ten by the time that he leaves. Um, This film is set in 1969 and the thing that Quentin Tarantino announced about this film was it was going to be loosely following or loosely based on the Manson murders. Uh, so the film takes place um, in the, at the start of the film. You are introduced to two characters: Rick Dalton, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, and Cliff Booth, played by Brad Pitt. These are two fictitious characters based on real-life actors um, who pl- who were playing in the old spaghetti western, uh, the dying industry at that time of the spaghetti westerns. Is Rick Dalton meant to be Clint Eastwood? Is that um, a loose? Because when I watched this with my dad the other week, my dad was saying that what Clint Eastwood did around this time was he revived his career by getting into spaghetti westerns. I think there, are, I think there are a couple of actors. Like from from my notes, I, I think he's influenced by George Maharis, Ed Burns, Tab Hunter. Uh, I think Clint Eastwood was always a bit too famous of a western actor, right. and what he was doing with his westerns was they were reinventing the wheel every time with them. Um, and Rick Dalton is at, is at a stage of his career where he is just playing the foil constantly. He plays the bad guy who comes into an episode after starring in this show called Bounty Law uh, from 1958 to 1963. And he's failing to make the transition into, into big cinema now, isn't he? he exactly. He's not, not able to do the more emotional acting that is becoming more popular than just the stereotypical like handsome cowboy in a TV show acting. Exactly. And he's had other roles in films. Most notably, there's a Nazi film... <laughs> which is, um, the, the scene of it is like the Nazis planning and then Leonardo DiCaprio with an eye patch um, with a flamethrower ready to burn them all. I think that's one of the best scenes in the movie. It's, just, see, it's so funny. It's, it's a great nod back to Glorious Bastards and it's a great way to set up what happens in like the final yeah. climactic scenes of the film. But he, what does he say? He says something like, Anybody ordered fried sauerkraut? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it was exactly, it's something ridiculously stupid like that. Um, the other thing that's great about Leonardo DiCaprio in this film is that, um, and his acting is that I love his the, the dialogue created for the bounty law scenes. And you have like pop-ups from like Michael Madsen, etc. Um, in this. And it's just silly, it's such silly writing and so over the top. Uh, Tarantino really knows and, and gets his references on that. But uh, it goes really deep as well because there's like a whole sequence where um, DiCaprio's acting in a cowboy show with Timothy Oliphant. Yes. who is playing an actor called James Stacey, who, like, Jim, Timothy Oliphant, in the last 20 years, has kind of cemented himself through TV shows like Deadwood and Justified as being, like, the handsome cowboy bad boy, like, anti-hero. Mm. And so Tarantino cast him in this film 
because of the fact that it, it well, he, he kind of said it was like a nod to this career that he's had. Mm. Like, Timothy Oliphant's not over the hill, but he is in his 50s now, like DiCaprio. Is he in his 50s? Yeah, he's oh guy. my God. Um, but yeah, they just... <coughs> just clever little touches and there's, there's got to be I'm not big on my westerns but there's got to be hundreds of references that me and you missed yeah exactly I watched a lot of easter egg videos for this oh did you and yeah um, it's, it's crazy how many different Hollywood tropes that he managed to fit in and, and of the time period etc um, so yeah this so we said this follows the Manson murders um, it kind of takes a long parallel story so you see the Manson family you see the ranch um, you see um, Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski exactly and the, the, a lot of the um, the first watching of this is through Cliff Booth Cliff Booth goes to visit um, the Manson family ranch um, Cliff Booth being Brad Pitt's character who yeah. is like Leonardo DiCaprio's foil the stuntman exactly and so you get to see all of the uh, Manson family and you get to understand their sort of life on the ranch and their sort of like their tendencies and and um, is it George Dern or Frank Dern? Bruce, Bruce Dern. Dern. Bruce Dern. Bruce Dern pr- plays um, an old man who is being taken advantage of on the ranch um, by the Madison family um, because he, I think he gets to have sex with the, the woman. Is that correct? Yeah, that I mean, implied, in, anyway? in, in in real life, um, I can't remember what his name is, but the guy that owns Spawn Ranch or lived there. Um, he kind of he was blind and he formed this kind of pseudo relationship with one of the clan members called Squeaky. Um, and it was kind of long assumed that there was kind of maltreatment going on, but it was mm. never like fully confirmed. Yeah. Um, and yeah, well, yeah, I think the, 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 it's, the, the film goes in parallel with it because you don't get an idea from the film that it's the film basically presents an idea that like the Manson murders are the the, the glue that puts all the story together, but it also is so in the background that it only comes to the forefront later on. I mean, Margot Robbie in this film, who plays Sharon Tate, she does. She has what five lines in this film? Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's a point I was going to touch on. Is that, it, like you said, it kind of in all of the press and the build up to this film, everyone was thinking, "Oh fucking hell!" Like, is this going to be a really gruesome Tarantino film about the Tate murders? Yeah. Um, and he has almost, you know, in his classic, we spoke about this in the last last part, but subverting history this is another one of those films so without giving it all away um he doesn't take you down the route the historical route that you think you're going to go down Mm. through the journey of fictional characters it actually takes a detour um and it's very interesting so on the one hand i really respect him for doing that but on the other hand there's a lot of actors and actresses that were kind of made a big fuss of in the build-up to this film coming out that actually don't really amount to anything much. Yeah. So Margot Robbie is the core example of that. She is obviously a big Hollywood A-lister now, and they know she's going to pull in loads of tickets. Um, as Will said, she doesn't really do an awful lot. No. They, it, it, it's very odd. You see her quite a lot, but you never really hear her say much. It's almost like she's this character that is you're sort of a fly on the wall of, rather than you're actually watching her dialogue and her scenes. Um and I, I'm torn between feeling like it's really clever because it's the whole point of it, but then I'm also kind of thinking she's kind of wasted. Like she's got so much range. I mean, I've recently watched I Tonya for the first time, ah. and it's fucking incredible. Um, and I was really hoping for more of a punchy role from her that kind of 
does the, you know the woman Sharon Tate justice um but also actually has a bit more involvement in the story yeah because she's kind of you could almost run this film without the without the Tate family this could exist on its own as a film about a bunch of guys in Hollywood who get entangled with the Manson family and you don't actually need her at all. No. If you stripped it out, it wouldn't be an issue. But the main reason it seems to be tied in is because, well, A, I think it's a very clever marketing ploy, but B, it's because the character of Rick Dalton is fading away. He's he's losing the acting roles that he used to be getting um, on silver platters. And he is a neighbour to Polanski and Tate, and he's trying to make that shift to be working with people like them and Steve McQueen. On a on another side note, Steve McQueen's cameo, what did you think? Yeah. Oh, well, not Steve McQueen's cameo, but Damien Lewis acting as Steve McQueen. And cameoing this film. Um, I liked I liked the the dialogue that he did, but I just felt it was a bit like I thought it was shit. Yeah, like, nah. it was like oh, this is really weird. Like what a strange casting. Um, I also thought Al Pacino. They made such a huge thing. Al Pacino is going to be in a Tarantino movie. Al Pacino played Al Pacino in the Tarantino movie though. Uh, for for all of two minutes. Yeah, he, all of two minutes he was there, and then he just he just didn't do that much. And that whole scene is taken up by sort of like. Um, fast forwards and, and going behind to all different scenes that Rick Dalton has done before, and that and that completely takes out Al Pacino's force in the movie. Like, yeah. that, like it just it just doesn't add anything to it. It kind of feels like Tarantino's got to a stage in his career where he not necessarily feels like he owes prestigious actors that he adores roles in his films, but kind of feels like if he's now going to be doing maybe one more film and then kind of you know retiring he needs to squeeze them in yeah and it, it, throughout this film even like the inclusions of you know Tarantino uh, stalwarts like Kurt Russell and Michael Madsen and Bruce Dern like th- again in the build up to the film there's a fuss about them being in it and they're in it for all of a minute and a half yeah there's another film that this was like um, oh, fuck, what was it is it the Grand Budapest Hotel where you have just loads and loads yeah, and loads yeah, yeah. and loads of cameos from famous actors? Yes, Grand Budapest Hotel is the one. And like Adrian Brody and Bill Murray and all of them. And they're all in it for like 45 seconds apiece. Mm. And you're kind of thinking, great, but the story was really good without you guys getting involved. Like, what's the point? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I kind of agree with that. Um, what do you think of the generic Tarantino tropes in this film? So, like, the, from talking about the history um, yesterday, do you think it does a lot to subvert the tropes? Do you think it embodies them? Or do you think, actually, the tropes are a bit in the way? I think it's interesting because this this film is very... It, it takes a lot of his learnings from his career on board, but it also is, like, radically different to what he's done with, let's just take... Inglorious Bastards, The Hateful Eight, and Django Unchained, for example. Yeah, it's all of those films are quite violent and bloody. R- aside from one sequence, one hilarious sequence in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, there is pretty much no violence. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very, very slow moving. I mean, we know that Tarantino loves his prose of his actors, but it's a very, very slow moving watching people exist. You're essentially watching two and a half days in the life of about six characters. Um, 
and it is very much that fly on the wall feeling but to a point where like there's a whole scene where you watch Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt watch the pilot episode of a show they starred in and it cuts so that the whole all you can see is the TV and you hear them in the background chatting in the living room while they're smoking and drinking Yeah, and that's really weird because we have so many we've had a relationship like that at uni where we sit there and watch shit and talk away and like chat away and it's so funny to watch two people like Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt do that like do they do that when their films come out do you know what know. I mean I don't know it'll be, it'll be interesting to, find, to, to know but there's, yeah, yeah. there's just loads of that stuff in this film it's very very slow it's very um, pleasant and it's a, it's a very easy film to watch I was expecting it to be like a three hour either ridiculously intense or very complex film and it's not that is it no I would say that the film is a bit too long I think that it could do with about a 20 minute cut um, I think there's a there's like a second act yes where it dips in the middle dramatically and the only story arc that I find interesting is Brad Pitt when he goes to find the Manson family ranch mm. everyone else at that point is off doing boring shit like Leonardo DiCaprio does a, like it's such a long scene but like a really long sequence with Timothy Oliphant shooting a western oh I see I love that scene I think I okay. th- my problem with this film is, or, or the pacing of the film, is the bizarre like 10, 15, 20 minutes at the end. Not that I don't like the things that I see in that, but I think that that could be incorporated into day three because what happens is there's two days of uh, two days of um, in January 1969, and then there's a six month time jump, and I really struggle with that. I just see there's no point. I, I really enjoyed it. No, I, no, I, re- I really, really liked it because okay. it gave you the opportunity to move um, characters who were kind of flatlining to a new stage and then return to their return to their environments for like the final showdown. What I will say though is just going back to that go back to that second act for a second it's the it's the whole arc with margot robbie where sharon tate goes to like she goes to a shop to buy a book oh that's and then she goes and she goes to the cinema to watch herself in um a movie that she's just starred in in which was which happened in real life and while it's sweet it goes on for about 15 minutes and you're like Jesus Christ this could have been done in a minute and a half mm. like it's not so sentimental and well shot that it needs that much time um, but then I, with the third act where they've done the time jump I, I really really enjoyed it but what I didn't enjoy was every other line Kurt Russell is narrating something yeah I don't really understand why it's Kurt mm. Russell narrating I don't understand why it's him like the what? Why that, that character? Because Kurt Russell plays another character in this film. He plays the um, stunt co- coordinator of the film, right? Yeah, with yeah, Zoe yeah. Bell. It's it's their husband and wife, aren't they? Yeah, their husband and wife team. Do you want to really briefly touch on the Bruce Lee controversy? Yes, I I have a. I have Give a... me your ten cents on the Bruce Lee controversy. So, for anyone that's not aware, there's a scene in the film where Brad Pitt as a stuntman has like a little bit of a, a, a showdown with Bruce Lee on the set of the Green Hornet um, and they portray it's an actor called Mike Moe plays Bruce Lee and he does it terrifically really good um, and it's it's very 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 funny but it's caused a lot of drama um, like Bruce Lee's family have like come out in the press and been like you've portrayed him as this arrogant jerk 
who didn't have any understanding of of respect and combat or whatever. And it, it, but it's just basically it's been really dramatic and everyone's blown it out. Of uh, my opinions on it are so there's a story about this that um, es- essentially Bruce Lee in this film um, in Batman and Robin when we. Bruce Lee was playing the Cato in the Green Hornet and they did a crossover episode at one point. In real life? In real life. This is in real life. Uh, Bruce Lee walked off the set of Batman and Robin because he was told that he had to lose to Robin. And then and, and then the, the sequence was then recast as a draw between Robin and Bruce Lee. Really? So I think that Quentin Tarantino knows this because Quentin Tarantino has proved by this movie that he knows his references. Therefore, that is the portrayal of Bruce Lee that he has extended and created in the way that Tarantino creates. I think that to take the portrayal of Bruce Lee seriously in this Tarantino film is, I think, doing Tarantino a bit of a disservice. Yes, against the point. I don't think that you can take that character seriously. That character is an over-exaggeration. Steve McQueen wasn't like what David... Damien Lewis was like in this movie. And, and none of his movies are applauded for their historical accuracy. Yeah. But what I what bugs me the most about this whole debate, which, I, which just drives me insane, is Cliff Booth, Brad Pitt's character, probably gets the most screen time out of all of them. And rightly so. He's the best written, most entertaining part of this film. Yeah. Um, but there are lots of these moments where he kind of thinks something or thinks back to a memory... And you're viewing it through his lens. And we know he's a slightly unstable guy. And so this whole sequence with Bruce Lee on this set takes place within him standing on Rick Dalton's roof trying to fix a TV antenna and thinking back to why he got kicked off the job. Yeah. So the whole fight sequence with Bruce Lee, and this whole thing goes on for about 10 minutes, and it's this brilliant joke because it eventually cuts back to him on the roof going, oh, right, yeah, fair enough. And it's, I, I thought it was absolutely hilarious. Like yeah. Everyone in the cinema was howling with laughter. But it it all takes place in his head. So it's not even them trying to depict something real that happened between a fictional character and a non-fictional person. No. It's, uh, it's just yeah, it's just insane. I, I don't understand why it's taken so seriously. I just don't really get why why they're having such a problem with it. I think, if they'd, I, I think it's outrage on not seeing the film as well. Um, I, I feel like sometimes people do that when they have outrage over a particular portrayal from people hearing about it or the Twitter reaction and not because they've actually seen the film I think if they saw the film they'd be like oh this is ridiculous this is ludicrous of course it's not actually like suggesting that Bruce Lee is this terrible human yeah exactly um, I think one of the things as well that Tarantino does really well in this film and he's clearly like he actually he got sign off from Deborah Tate who is Sharon's younger sister um to go ahead and make the film he basically said this is the character this is what I'm doing with it I want your um, I want your approval to make it and she gave it so eagle eyed people before this film came out must have kind of realised it clearly can't go that dark exactly Um, but it's kind of again like what we were saying earlier it's kind of Sharon Tate's presence is kind of besides the point what he's trying to do is, is mock the Manson family and he does it in a terrific way. Like the sequence where you go to see them at the ranch and then you have all the girls on the side of the road hitching rides and then the like the really dumb ones that come and try and attack in the final act. Like they're portraying them exactly how they should be portrayed yeah. as absolute nutcases that had no grip on reality and were, were really dumb. And it's kind of a cathartic thing because this was 
you know, what did they say? It was like the death of the 60s when Sharon Tate died. That's what they said yeah. in LA. And the Manson family had this weird mystique around them that, like, they they were terrifying and they were scary and then they and that they were drug addled and etc. But they're actually just fools. They're actually just, yeah, they're just idiots. Yeah. And, and it, it, it's really nice. <coughs> or, or I really like the fact that he's taken his kind of ability as this notable director to almost call a group who there are still women and I don't know if you've seen the documentary from last year there are still women that are like completely transfixed on him as their Manson as their Messiah yeah um, but he's he's almost in his own way calling them out on their bullshit and I really like that yeah. I like that this film didn't go down the route of a bloody grotesque gruesome retelling of the actual murders but instead mocks the ridiculousness of the situation that got to that point and doesn't victim shame either. It doesn't do that by um, like he- going heavily in on the victims of this crime. It talks about the perpetrators. And I think that's the thing that I see, in, especially in the news these days, we tend to glorify the murderers as well as the murder victims. And that's just giving them airtime and giving them a martyr sa- a status um, so people can follow their example. And I think this film, it really shows the stupidity of the murderers without getting too entangled in the the personal lives of the people who the, the actual victims of the at the story. Um I, I really I really like that. I really respect that Tarantino did that with this film because I was I was worried that it might become a bit disrespectful to the Tate family. Um and he, and at no point it ever does. I think yeah, I mean he definitely like he hoodwinked his audience. Like he I think it's clever in a way that he's produced this laid back film so late into his career because he's led people down this garden path of thinking that you're you're, you're going to be in for a bloody gruesome ride. Like I went and saw it with my mum and my dad Ooh. and me and dad didn't really think about the concept until we sat down in the seats that this could actually be a really violent film and mum is a complete wuss and probably doesn't want to watch that. Um I don't think it was actually until we sat down in the cinema seats that Dad was like, oh, it's about the date murders. And my mum was like, great. (laughs) (laughs) But she watched the whole thing. Like, fine, she closed her eyes for, like, the one violent bit. But it's a two-hour and 47-minute movie by Tarantino, and she only winced once. Like, and I think it's, it's cool that he's employed... He's employed all the techniques he's famous for. Like, he's... He's subverted the historical narrative in an entertaining way. He's got these huge lines of prose where people are discussing pop culture references. He's built this setting, which is kind of like an ode to the environment. So this time it's, you know, based on his childhood memories of growing up in L.A. and driving around in like an open top car with his with his uncle looking out at all the neon lights. Um, I saw, I had but, a- he's, he, but he's not done his violent bit, yeah. which shows restraint maturity I think know, some, in his later films I think some of the filmography this, this film is pretty stunning as well like like um, talking about like the tropes and etc I got a real vibes of Roma I don't know if you got the yeah, same yeah yeah I, I got real vibes of um, like wide the, shots that go on for a long time yeah like, and it was either following Sharon Tate or following a car or etc there was really really cool shots um, I really liked like the, the constant use of cars and the and and tracing the route out of the like the mansion so like cliff booth goes out and, and 
drives crazily in his car and then Sharon Tate drives the same route in her car and you have different music for the two pairs but it's sort of parallels and it, and I like it, those touches but it uses the same shots of them leaving and going down the street yes. so, so it's almost like you're learning more about each individual character's personality by the way they drive their car through the same street but also which, building which I absolutely love I think it's really clever but also building up the murder scene as well mm. I think that I, and it, it sort of it sort of adds the sort of like layers of like this is what they're doing at this time this is what they're doing at this time This, yeah you know what it really reminded me of it, it really really and it came to me like halfway through the film it reminded me of Grand Theft Auto 5 yes because Grand Theft Auto 5 for anyone that's played it it follows three different characters it's based in a fictional LA and the story moves in like a chronological fashion but you flip between the characters so you can actually in the game switch which of the three characters you're playing as and what it does is it, it, it like the camera like pans up to the top like to, to like a eagle eye view of the city and then it pans back down into whatever the other characters going on like doing at that time yeah and this film is very much like that it zips between the characters so like there's a whole sequence where you watch uh cliff booth take rick dalton home and get him into bed and then you watch him drive home you watch him go to his trailer make his dog dinner make himself dinner sit down and watch the tv and then it comes back out and it pans back to Rick Dalton's house and it's him learning he, his he, lines. He's like learning his lines in, in the swimming pool. And it's it's just it's it's so clever and I really like it. And I, I actually I really want to know if Grand Theft Auto had any kind of impact on him and influence on the way he made this film because it is so I, I go we will both I think inevitably go and watch this again at some point. Keep it in mind when you watch it because there are so many moments that feel like that video game. Yeah, I, that's interesting. I, I never thought about like that before. Um, I love that video game. Oh, it's such a good video game. It's such a good video game. <laughs> do you prefer Grand Theft Auto San Andreas, like the older ones, or do you prefer GTA V? Um, San Andreas, this is a really brief segue. San Andreas will always be my favourite Grand Theft Auto game purely because I went to Barnes Fair when I was nine years old. Oh, tell me about Barnes Fair. Barnes Fair, annual. It's in July. It's okay, okay. Um, it has this huge, huge book stand. Um, and I used to be a massive bookworm. So I would like, we'd go basically for the book stand and me and my dad would be there for about two hours and mum and Oscar, who was a baby at the time, would get really bored and leave. Um, but I bought, one year I bought two books that I conned dad into letting me buy. One of them was an Ali G in the house annual, Love it. which was basically just porn. Like it's just <laughs> pictures of women smoking weed with the tits out (laughs) it's such a bad like I can't believe he let me buy it Um, but because he liked Sasha Baron Cohen he was like fine Um, oh it's all in satire I know the the second book I bought that year well I I must have been about nine years old was a Grand Theft Auto San Andreas hardback strategy guide you know you used to be able to get strategy guides for video games where people basically took pictures of all the moments in the game and gave you step by step instructions of how to do it like what a ridiculous thing to do Um, I wasn't allowed the GTA games but they let me buy the manual Ah. because they were just like oh fine it's a book like it's not going to be a problem when I got home I realised at the back of the book there was a CD no and it was the full game no and so at night i secretly installed it on my packard bell pc one wow. of those massive pcs that you used to have back in the day I wrote, yeah the um, bricks and i hid it 
in like the control panel so it didn't pop up on the screen when my family used the computer. This is and amazing. I had to wait because I was so young and I never got any time on my own in the house. I had to wait, I think about three months until I had two mates around for a sleepover. And at like two in the morning, we snuck into the room of the PC and played Grand Theft Auto until the sun came up. Wow. I know, man. So, you- so that one, San Andreas will always hold a special place in my heart. But GTA 5 is a terrific game. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and back to Tarantino. And back to Tarantino. Um, we need one of those, like, shimmer sounds. Like... Um, so, I, I don't know. Soundtrack, I think, is the next... I suppose the next thing that needs to be talked about. Quentin Tarantino films are famous for vast swathes of silence and, like, heavy prose without any mm. real sound effects or, or, or change in... Yeah. But um, but then and then it goes from big musical scenes and scores, usually to do with movement or transition, um, for getting a character to place to place or a character driving a car or looking cool or something. And what did you think of the soundtrack for this film? I think it's good. I think it's um, the sound of the '60s is very iconic, um, but it's not anything that was un like I'm not you know not, I wouldn't be able to name all the songs on the soundtrack, for example. But I think that. The, the songs used like Hush by Deep Purple and stuff like that like they're, they're songs I, I, I know yeah. or I, I at least I, I at least recognise so it wasn't a soundtrack that um, affected me as much as say um, you know uh, the, the tracks in Reservoir Dogs like Stuck in the Middle with You and Steeler's Wheel or all of the stuff from Kill Bill um just because I was more, it was more familiar to me. Yeah, I get that. I, my my opinion is that I found it familiar, yet I didn't know what they fully were. But I also didn't find it. I didn't. I didn't find. I found it fine. Like I thought it was fine. I didn't, I didn't think there was any standout moments of music. Or, me neither. Especially when the, a lot of the film was constructed by music, I found that the, the a lot of it was just a bit. Eh, that's that's a song from the sixties. But then what I will say is uh, Tarantino. In some ways, he can be his own worst enemy, I think, in the sense that he maybe hampers the ability of his film by not being able to get out of his own way. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't, I can't really sit here and give you a direct criticism where I think that's relevant. Maybe um, that would be in the overly long talking scenes in this film. Like, even for a Tarantino film, some of them are just overly long and just not very interesting. Mm. Like, there are some scenes that are just a bit boring. Um, but part of that is down to the kind of the rights of this movie and the creative rights and how it all works so I don't know if you're aware but obviously Miramax and the Weinstein company did his films for like the last decade Um, and then he took Once Upon a Time in Hollywood the production away from them um, and various production companies bid for it and eventually Sony won the film rights after agreeing to a 95 million dollar budget um, but not only that, they gave, in contractually agreed, they gave Tarantino what has been described in the industry as extraordinary creative controls. They gave him a 25% cut of every fir- of the first dollar gross. Mm. Um, and they also have, they, they've written in it that within 10 to 20 years, the rights will completely fall to him. Yes. Um, so it's, it, this whole extraordinary creative control thing is interesting. It's kind of like, um, maybe decisions were made in this film that um, were maybe boycotted a bit or like vetoed by 
other experienced producers in his previous movies yeah. to, to make them a bit more streamlined and a bit more fast paced. Yeah, I find it crazy that that is that he has a, that amount of creative control that he can do that. Um, I suppose, but I suppose it's his first new agreement since the Weinstein Company and the fall of that. But he's so a, people are people are fighting for him. Exactly, but he also he knows he's got the clout. Like again, like this is another thing that was quite interesting that I picked up on was do you know what Comscore is? No. It's like analytics for films. So they they basically they uh, almost take like census data of people going to see a movie when it comes out in America, um, and apparently 47% of the people that went to see the film on opening weekend in the US went because of the director and normally the average amount of people that go on opening weekend because of a director is 7% mm. so it's 40% higher than your average director and 37% went because of the cast and that's normally an 18% average Yeah. so he knows he is capable of um, requesting that kind of control whether it actually works in his favour all the time is another question. Well, that's what I think, is I think sometimes you can have the problem of having a Quentin Tarantino film that does reasonably well because it's a Quentin Tarantino film, but doesn't outstretch itself if that, in terms of audience response and etc. Yeah, People go and see it for a Quentin Tarantino film, but it doesn't get the repeat viewing um, like other films that are... I, I, better or more interesting etc would get so it can it can make him lazy yeah i agree i mean i think this, the kind of the seinfeldy nature of this film meant that when i left the cinema i wasn't that fussed about seeing it again anytime soon but i kind of like talking about it now i am quite interested in watching it again um just to see whether there was maybe more impact in scenes than I kind of picked up on at first or whether it is actually a bit boring and I I, we, I was correct in that assessment. I think I would like to watch it again to see if it hangs together. My main problem with this film is that I don't think it hangs together like a film. Now, I understand what Tarantino does in a lot of his films is he takes and he takes the plot and kind of puts the plot slightly to the background and puts the dialogue first and sort of does the sort of everyday normal scenes of humans just interacting with a plot loosely in the background i understand that so much of this film however just felt in in terms of transitions and in terms of tonal themes i felt it just felt a bit like a sketch show and not a film i felt there yeah. were so many different parts of it that were really good and really well written and really interesting scenes that it kind of just felt like they were so scatterdashed together. It, they, they didn't all mesh together in the way you were hoping. Well, it was like that someone had just like literally copied and pasted a lot of scenes into into different yeah. into different parts and was like, well, that's a film. There and, are, I mean, we've, we've seen films like, I mean, a, a great example of it for me personally is Crazy Stupid Love where you've got all of these actors, different characters. It's the one with like Steve Carell, Emma Stone, Ryan Gosling. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. it's a great example of a film where you have all of these, like, you have like five or six different interesting characters. And at the start, you see them all doing their different things and you don't really know how they're all connected. And then towards the final act of the film, their stories all converge in this really, really clever and entertaining way. And the whole way through this film, I was thinking, I can't wait for... Margot, Leo, Brad, uh, uh, Manson, and all these people to all be in this room doing this, having this ridiculous Tarantino S dialogue sequence that ends in a bloody fight. Yeah. And I feel like the payoff was kind of, the payoff was very good and very well written, but it's, it's less than half of what I was expecting it to be. Yeah. And, and it doesn't have to be bloody. I just wanted it to be more impactful. 
I just don't want to be trolled. I think that's my, my other thing is that I like I like watching a film where I'm not at the e- at the end of it. I'm it's like it's it's leading up to a troll. Um, I, I I don't like getting trolled in Game of Thrones. I don't like getting trolled in t- Tarantino movies. No, no. And especially unintentionally. Like I didn't feel like it deserved. Like I feel that the ending itself, like the end the the 15 minute ending, in a, in a, its encapsulated self, was shocking, clever, interesting, and funny in a nice switch. However, I don't feel like the movie had previously earned that point. Or, like, even if it was a surprise, I don't feel like it earned that surprise. I don't think it built up enough of the narrative things. And that's why I have a problem with the time jump. It's not necessarily because um, it's it doesn't work narratively. I just think it, I just think it doesn't give... It doesn't build up to a climax that is then subverted. Mm. I don't feel like it ever does. I feel like... It's they're they're milling around with so many ideas in the in the first two segments, um, and I can understand how you found that boring because I'm because it's there's just so much like dialogue and character design etc. And then the six month jump happens, and I feel like and they it doesn't all add to anything. They also all kind of change in personality a little bit. Yeah, and that's and, not and so, so it's almost like you're suddenly you're suddenly dealing with characters that are different to what you've just spent two hours watching. And Leo gets but a you wife. You haven't seen the change. And Leo gets a wife, and who's irrelevant. Yeah, and it's and it like the the premise of the last last couple of hours is it's it, he um Cliff he can't afford Cliff anymore Rick can't afford Cliff anymore um so it's their last night together yeah is the is the um which is I understand it's a very it's a it's a very deep and meaningful thing but the dynamic doesn't change per se in the film but it should have done and there should have been a couple of like s- specific character changes or at least an explained character change um. And I think that Tarantino was doing it for like subverting expectations and etc. I think it. I think that it, this is intentional. But this is the most. I think this is my most annoying thing is that this is not done by a bad filmmaker. But at what point? But it feels like bad decisions were made to justify what he deemed a clever way of, of creating. Exactly. Yeah. And I, th- I, I know. I, yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Like it's it's almost like he's trying to justify bad filmmaking decisions by saying yes, but that was the point. Exactly. And, that's and, exactly and, and, my and, point and, with and it. And that's not always the point, especially with someone who can craft as meticulously as he has done in the past. It. it I'm not saying it felt lazy. It just didn't feel as impressive as previous work. No, it felt That's like it. it felt like a riff on riff on his previous work. It didn't feel like um, a new a new standpoint on it. And on that note, should we go into our critic quote awards? Yeah, let's do that. Um, what was your best description for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Uh, I don't want to be that guy, but I'm going to be that guy. I've got two. Oh, have you? <laughs> <laughs> um, so my best description, my first one um, is from Dimitrios Mathios from the Arts Desk, which, which is a beautiful name. I love it. Um, it really it really comes with the tongue. Um, and he says, it isn't the masterpiece that some are claiming. It's too rambling, self-indulgent, and despite a trip typically grand, green, oh my God, look at that word and try and say it. A typically grand Gwignol ending. Gwignol. What did, you, did you know what that means? No idea. Okay. Um, Gwignol ending, anticlimactic for that. There we go. Explains it in the second part. Um, but it is an evocative and entertaining pagan to the Lo- Los Angeles of the... F- Payen? 
Ode to the Los Ode Angeles. Ode to the Los Angeles of the filmmaker's use, youth. Let's Don't try you that again. Mate, you got that, I'm going to switch you? this. I'm going to switch it up. I'm going to tr- change it to make sense. Tell us, your, tell us your second description. Do you know what? No, do you know what fucking annoys me about film critics like this? They just, they just they add words like that for no apparent reason just to be like, oh, I'm so urbane. And I'm like, <laughs> I know shit. And like, <laughs> I, like, I, I did an English literature degree five See, you're years doing, ago. you're doing what Tarantino did with this film. You've Riffing. made some bad decisions and you're trying to justify it by blaming it on someone else. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck off, Demetrius. Um, my second one is by Edward Johnson Ott of Nouveau News Weekly and he says and I, I really like this review if like me you're a Tarantino fan Once Upon a Time isn't his best but you'll enjoy it if you're not a devotee you'll probably hate it which I kind of think is true I think I, that if you're yeah. if this is your first Tarantino film that you've ever seen you'll like the dialogue but you won't like the film I think I enjoyed this much more because I had spent a week consuming yeah, his films exactly. and getting used to his style um, I think we live in a, an age where Films are fairly long, but they're all quite jam-packed. So that films, big releases tend to be longer than they used to be. But, I mean, fuck, I watched Hobson Shaw the other week, and it was two hours and 20 minutes long, and it doesn't let up for that whole time. That film could be an hour shorter, in my opinion. Mm. Like, it's fun, but it's way too long. Um, but we are so used to long run times, but with a lot packed in them, that this kind of, if you're going along expecting it to be really over-the-top and exciting you are going to sit there thinking, this is quite dull. Yeah, yeah. And it goes on for ages. Um, but because it's not what viewers are expecting in 2019. Just learn from you when it never really hears example. Do an hour and 39 minute film, an hour and 40 minute film and, and nail it out of the park. Joaquin Phoenix one. You know, yeah, terrific movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's our, one of <laughs> our best say, well, yeah, Thank you, Jake. Um, you looked, yeah, you my, my, my best description of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood comes from Dave Calhoun of Time Out. Oh, Dave. Um, classic Dave. <laughs> he says, um, it sits at the mature end of Tarantino's work, bringing his tongue-in-cheek storytelling together with exquisite movie craft and killer lead performances from Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio. While I think that... In retrospect, I wouldn't call it exquisite movie craft. I think there is an awful, awful lot to be said for the production of this film, the performances from most of the lead character, lead actors, and the, you know the duo lead characters are fantastically written. Yeah, it's just I, I would say the two biggest elements of this film that are crafted poorly are the dialogue in general, general, the structure of the scenes. And then a third point would be like I, I think some of the more like mid to minor characters are severely underwritten. Yeah, I, yeah. Um, I think twist foreshadowing I would add to that list, but yeah, I think that's pretty much the same. Uh, my most savage uh, is by Louis Proyex from Counterpunch.org, um, and it really is a counterpunch. This this one, it's uh, it hits home. Why would Tarantino make his leading man an O.J. Simpson wife killer? Probably has a that probably has a lingering effect of his longer time association with Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, what well, and that's mocking the ambiguous scene where Brad Pitt maybe killed his wife. Exactly. Which is actually going to be my favourite moment of. <laughs> I I absolutely love that scene. You know, it's, it's based hilarious. on a real like a real murder at the time. It's really interesting. So Cl- Cliff's wife is. Do you, are you do you know this? No. Cliff's um Cliff's wife is referred to in one scene as Natalie. Natalie refers to the Hollywood actress Natalie Wood, who was killed 
in a mysterious drowning accident whilst on holiday with her husband on a boat. That's so funny. And so that's where it's based on. I was like, oh, that's great. The scene is hilarious because she's just treating him like shit and he's sat there holding a harpoon and it's pointed at her and then it just cuts back to reality. And he's got and the James... Have, and it's never addressed again. And, and he's, he's wearing the James brilliant. Bond orange Thunderball like wetsuit as well. So you know he's ready to harpoon someone straight through the heart. There needs to be more of that in this film. Um, yes, there does. Yes, there completely does. Anyway, yeah. um... My most savage review is from Ryan Searek of the Omaha Reader. And he says, For the second straight time, Quentin Tarantino has made a mean, ugly movie that revels in the grotesque mutilation of a woman at the hands of a man. <laughs> Jesus Christ, did he watch the same film as me? Uh, yeah, I, I would say that it's... Inter- it's I, the female characters in this film are not exactly the most fleshed out, etc. Um, at all. But then, but then they don't really have to be. I think it's. I, I don't think I don't that's think... what it's referring to. I think it's more referring to um, the Manson girls that are killed in the final sequence. Um, and I mean, they do get ridiculously mutilated. It is like while there's only one bloody scene in this film, it's a bloody scene. Yeah. Like, and also, I feel like the mutilation of women throughout Tarantino's work is mainly to be done by Kill Bill, um, in, and the, the bride, <laughs> exactly. etc. Mutilation by a woman. And if that's not feminism, I don't know what it is. I'm joking. <laughs> um, what was your favourite moment? Uh, Mine was the boat scene, which we just discussed. Uh, I have two. Either it's the Nazi scene with Leo in the eye patch with the, with yeah. the um, sauerkraut, um, or the little girl scene. Yeah, that was, that was my I backup. Thought, I thought moment. it was fantastic. I thought it was really well written. Um, who was who? Who played her? Because she, that actress, is yeah. got real good nuance for a little girl, and she was she was great. She was great. the whole scene was really really great. And made me feel actually touched the film, and that was and that is the nearest the film got to a plot. And there are too many moments like that strewn through it, but just not. Don't go anywhere. Not assembled. Yeah, Avengers not assembled. Yeah, they're not they're not there. Um, yeah. yeah, I watched that. I watched the um, fight scene from Avengers Endgame the other day. I cried. It was really. I watched the, the audience reactions from the cinema of it people of people like crying and laughing and getting excited by Cap getting the, the hammer. Oh my god! It's so oh, good. it's great. It's great. Um, um, but ratings. I have looked at your rating and it's so different to mine. <laughs> what are you going to give it out of ten? Uh, I'm going to give it a six. A six. A six. Come on, mate. You've rated films. I'm but no. I thought about this. I'm still rating it six. <sighs> I don't think it hangs together like a film. I think that... What did you give Dark Phoenix? It's a good question. I don't know what I gave Dark Phoenix. Um, (laughs) Because you can't rate that higher than this, surely. Yeah, I can. Okay, go on. Give me your reasons. Because just because it's a Tarantino film doesn't mean that it doesn't have to be rated like everything else. Mm. And it didn't hang together like a film. Well, you're doing a Tarantino again. You're subverting my expectations. Exactly. Aren't... (laughs) And but this not, is the problem! Not necessarily in a good way. <laughs> not necessarily in a good way. Tarantino, um, there is this mystique about Tarantino I'm, films that you can't rate them lower than a seven because a, it's Tarantino films. Upon film. reflection, I mean, I, I struggle to rate Tarantino films. I tried to rate all the ones I've watched in the past week that we discussed in the first volume, and I kept kind of lingering around the eight mark. Yeah, I saw none eight, of them, Dogs 8.5. None, none, yeah. none of them are so fucking brilliant that they're 10 out of 10 films because they're all a bit rough around the edges. Um, but none of them are really worse than the seven, except for Death Proof, uh, which was shit, and Jackie Brown, which I didn't finish. Um, I don't think this skews towards the higher end of the eight spectrum. I think it is more a seven, seven point five. But I did really enjoy it. I think that it is the one of the worst. This is a terrible way of framing this sentence. One of the worser crafted Tarantino films. It's 
not been done with the same intelligence that I think his previous films have been done. Yeah. Um, and the yeah, and like you said, the runtime is quite bloated. But I think uh, the the co leads, the the setting, the production value, and just some of the touching sequences that happen, and I suppose um, the Easter eggs as do, well, do make it a terrific film. That I think I think historically this will never be regarded as his best film, but it will be one that people revisit. They chuck on on Netflix. This this is going to have its own place in the Tarantino. Um, universe as the more laid back one that's probably got a lot of humour that is missed the first time you watch it and is probably the best one to ease people into Tarantino films with. I think in a year's time I think it'll be very meme worthy. I think I that, don't think it'll be meme worthy. I just think that Do you it not think be, the it, flamethrower sequences and etc. Yeah, like... yeah, maybe but I just I don't it won't be an iconic work, but it will be one that has its place in an easy and watch in, yeah as an easy watch and I'm interested to see how that plays out and to be fair there's not a lot of Tarantino films that are easy watchers no, I mean I suppose Kill Bill Volume 1 is probably the closest you get to that and that even even that is too violent for a lot of people mm. um, so you haven't rated it yet uh, 7 out of 10 <laughs> 7 out of 10 ok there we go um and that's it. That's our review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Volume um, 1 and Volume 2 is completed. Volume, yeah, so Volume 1, the history of Quentin Tarantino as told by slightly tipsy Will and Jake yeah. in a very loud, excitable way. And Volume 2, the following morning with a nice cup of joe um, yeah. and a much more intellectual discussion. And like Kill Bill Volume 2, our audience member Matt was killed um, as part of our podcast. Um, get out yeah, yeah Matt, Matt, Matt doesn't exist. Yeah, Kill Matt. <laughs> Volume <Kill> 2. <laughs> um, thank you very much for listening. As always, please make sure you uh, follow us on Instagram and Facebook to keep up to date with when the next episode's out. Um, just at 52 Week Film Project and we will see you all very soon. Bye!